Romans 8, 16 through 18. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You may be seated. Well, we're coming back to the book of Romans after a brief hiatus as we looked at uh, biblical answers to life's big questions. So keep the Bible open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to bring a Bible. And there are Bibles right there in the front of the pew racks or underneath the seat. You also find the passage in the worship folder. You may look at it on a device. As long as you're not checking your stocks, I'm okay. Um, And that's just uh, fine as well. So Romans uh, 8, verses 16 to 18. Now, actually, though we've been looking at some very practical themes over the last few weeks, truly, uh, this one is really the most practical, suffering. Um, Now, I've got to get some things out on the table so that you can hear where we're going from uh, the Bible on this. Um, You know, I'm not going to be able to answer or solve everyone's problems, okay? Um, That's just not going to happen. Plus, uh, the great Augustine put it like this. He said that evil is the absence of good. So there is a sense in which uh, that suffering, by its very nature, is not, does not well respond to logical analysis. <laughs> it is the disorder of order. It is the anti-logic Uh, Trying to rationalize suffering is like trying to paint with noise or write with an airplane. It's a category error. Uh, That said, of course, the Bible does have a a whole worldview framework on this. Um, And again, I'm not really going to be getting, uh, of course, we're going to touch on that. It's going to be working within the, the Bible's framework, of course, overall, the whole answer to the problem of evil. God made us good, we're fallen, Um, God sent his son to take our sin so that we believe in him, one day we might see him in glory and there'll be no more crying, pain, there's a whole, that's just a thumbnail sketch, a whole framework that I could spend the next 30 minutes or so teasing out, but really we're going to do something a lot more practical. It seems to me that when we talk about suffering we we have to be uh, practical. Um, here's the other thing before we get into this text. We've just heard an extraordinary testimony. And uh, that's um, teeing up the subject for us. Uh, But of course, it is an extraordinary testimony, and each of you have your own testimony, different sufferings. Some of you may have gone through something like that very similar. Others may have sufferings that, by comparison, seem very light 
but we have all suffered. Um, and I need to let you know a little bit about my own sufferings. If I teach this passage without disclosing anything, uh, then you're going to be tempted to think that I'm just giving you theoretical answers and it's not something I've wrestled with. And uh, so I, I'm not the kind of preacher who, ev- who is always telling you about what's going on in my life. You know, I cannot stand listening to those sermons where every week it's sort of, you know, what happened in the Moody household this week? You know, it's like, just tell me about the Bible, will you? Um, but on this particular theme, if I don't disclose a little bit, you're not going to really hear what the Bible says. And so there'll be some disclosure throughout the sermon. Just as a little hint towards that is what's coming. Part of my own personality is that, um, well, have you heard of the dark night of the soul? Do you know that phrase? Um, if, if you talk to Rochelle, uh, she would say, with Josh, it's not the dark night of the soul. It's the dark week or month or year or decade of the soul. Um, it's like someone said to me after the 8 o'clock service, it's like one long Scandinavian winter. And I, I've, I've never really, it depends how you define these things. I've never really been depressed. If you define depression as a lack of energy, I've always worked too hard and enjoyed it and enthusiastic and next hill kind of guy. So I've never really been depressed. But I have pain, emotional pain, that's been with me as long as I can remember. And occasionally I come out of it. So I don't want you to make you feel sort of sad about me. And that's probably all I'm really going to say about that. Because, um, you know, I'm not on the couch and you're not the counselors. Um, but I, I at least need to disclose some of that as we get into this passage. Now, and there'll be a few more disclosures as we go through. Now, let's set the context, okay? So we're going back to Romans, and you've got to get the context. By the way, those of you who think I'm taking too long on Romans, Martin Lloyd Jones, the great Welsh preacher, had about 20 sermons on just verses 28 to 30. So if Lloyd-Jones was sitting here, he'd say, Josh, you're going too fast. Um, Paul was writing Romans from Corinth, a Greek city, about AD 57. He's going back to Jerusalem. He's planning to then go to Rome, and then after that to um, Spain. And uh, in the three months or so he's in Corinth, he writes uh, the letter of Romans to, uh, as we call it, to, to the Roman church. And it's really his summary of his message. This is the message that Paul preached. So if you want to know what Paul preached, read Romans. This is what he preached to the synagogues. Uh, Rome had various house churches, it's often thought. He greets at least one of them at the end of the Romans. The Roman church had begun um, being founded by uh, Roman Jews who'd heard the message preached to them, perhaps at Pentecost by Peter, uh, perhaps from other Christians as well. They traveled back, they begun the New Testament church. And then... The Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from Rome, including the Jewish Christians. And now they returned to Rome, and they discovered that in their absence, the church had become much more Gentile. And so there was some friction. And so Paul now is writing as the apostle to the Gentiles, but as a Jew himself, to explain how the whole gospel is fulfilled in Christ and is for all nations, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, all nations. And he's writing so that Rome can be a secure base uh, for mission, for world mission. His next trip to Spain, but also the Roman church, of course, in the center of the empire was a great church. 
And he wants to give them a solid grasp of the gospel so they might be a secure sending base, base for mission for all nations. Now, there's an immediate application for us as a church. College church is a sending church. It's a training church. And for us to have an impact on the world, we must have a firm grasp of the gospel. We must be able to refute error and rejoice in the truth. And we need to underline that regularly to each other in our day and our age because we live in an age where no one wants to know about the truth, capital T, because they think that tolerance is won by saying that everyone and every view is equally valid. Actually, of course, that does not give you tolerance. It just gives you a new dictatorship. And so we have to tell ourselves over and over again, we must stand up for truth. And we must be able to say that certain doctrines are wrong. A good pastor, like Paul, points out the truth and refutes the error. So this gospel of God, as Paul calls it at the beginning of the letter, is all concerning the Son, Jesus. And what that means... Any other message, any other religion, centers on anything else other than Jesus is not the truth. In a sense, there's only, you know, in a sense, Christianity is the non-religion religion. It's all about grace and everything else. Even if it calls itself Christian, that isn't biblical, it's really about rules and guilt and manipulation. Now we come to where we are in this great book. I could list all the people who said that Romans is a great book, the purest gospel, Luther called it. I said that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter and the greatest letter and the greatest book in the world. But why? Here's why. Because Paul has said in the first four chapters that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the evil in the world. By the way, those who say that the Old Testament book, Old Testament is a book of wrath, the New Testament God is different, have not read Romans or not listened to it. It's the same God, there is a judge. You say, well, I'm not sure I like that idea. Well, you have to decide whether you want a judge or not. Do you not want uh, the Holocaust, the disgusting evil we see about in the news to ever be judged? And if you want fairness... Then you want to judge, and that, of course, means we're all in trouble because we're all sinners, as Paul says. But God has sent Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, took the penalty we deserve so that we might have his righteousness and stand perfect, pure before God. Not about feelings, not about faith in the sense of making ourselves believe. Even faith can be a work, you know. It's about what God has done, and we simply receive. So Paul said all this, and then he celebrates this in chapter 5, a joyful, majestic assurance of those first 11 verses. And then he answers some questions that will logically arise from this gospel. What about ongoing sin? Well, Christians sin. All Christians sin. Just because you sin doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It's the fight against sin that counts. Are you fighting against sin? Are you wanting to be more like Christ? Well, then you're a Christian. Well, then what about the law, the Old Testament law? If it's all about receiving grace, what about the law? So Paul answers that. He says, we're not antinomian. We're not against the law. Now, there are people uh, then, there were people, and there are people today who say that because they follow Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, that's, that's wrong, Paul says. 
You know, that would be like saying, because you've been cured of cancer, it doesn't matter if you get cancer again. You know, if you understand what sin is, you'll never want to go there again. And so Paul answers that. And then he comes to chapter 8. And in the first part of chapter 8, he's saying again how much we can be assured of our standing for God because of what Jesus has done. Chapter 8 goes from no condemnation to no separation at the end. By the way, older Christians were told, uh, this teaching is basically gone now, but for the older Christian, they were told that chapter 8 is about holiness and you sort of had to get out of chapter 7 into chapter 8 to be holy. That was the phrase. And that led to horrible guilt trips for many people. But chapter 8 is not about holiness. It's about assurance. He starts, no condemnation, ends, no separation. But, and here we come to where we are now today. If there is all this assurance, then we have a problem. What is that problem, you say? Well, surely you felt it yourself. If you're not a Christian, you would have felt it. Isn't all this Christian stuff just pie in the sky when you die? I mean, really, Christians going around talking about being happy in Jesus all the day long, and they sing those I love you, Jesus kind of songs, you know, and they can't fool me. I've been to graveyards. They die just like anyone else. It's all just make-believe. It's the opiate of the people, as Marx put it. It's wish fulfillment, as Freud put it. Actually, that's an understandable objection, and Paul is now going to deal with it. After all, if Jesus rose from the dead and we are in Jesus, why do we die? You hear sometimes of slightly wacky Christian groups who go around praying for someone who's recently died to come back to life. It's a little strange. But then there's something in that intuition that's right. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, so why do we still die? I thought Jesus had come. Of course, there's a problem then, a great one for many Christians too. I thought Jesus loved me, and yet I have this terrible depression. I don't feel his love. Or, you know, my friend's going through this, that, or the other. Or those Christians who are being beheaded in the news by those evil Islamic extremists. You know, pastor, where is the power of this gospel that you talk about in any real, tangible, practical sense? Paul's now going to answer that in this second part of Romans 8. And basically what he's saying is that we will never grasp the answer until we understand That while our spirits have been made alive, right now with Christ, our bodies have not. There is a delay. Look, I I went to uh, the doctor this week for my annual checkup. And um, I was rather pleased with the amount of exercise I've been doing recently, so I wanted to tell him all about it. And, uh, you know, I've got this heart rate monitor now that uh, tells me just how fast my heart rate's going. You know, if you get it faster, you burn off more calories, that kind of thing. And so I was saying to him, you know, I, I get it up into the 170s quite a bit now, and, you know, it's I'm doing really well. And his face just looked white, and he, he said to me, um, at your age, okay, you should never get it up that high. 
140, 150 is the maximum. He said, Josh, we are not 20 anymore. (laughs) Uh, I said to him, okay, now you're going to tell me it's just going to keep on getting better with every year, right? And he just looked away and smiled because we knew. And you know. But why? If we've been raised with Christ. And what Paul says is we've been raised spiritually but not yet physically. And you say, well, that's great, but it doesn't really help me as I go through my suffering. And frankly, I have a lot of, you know, disclosure here, full disclosure. Frankly, I have a lot of sympathy with that because I think it's very hard to really feel what Paul says here or think what he says he thinks here. He is an extraordinarily spiritually mature person. I found it very hard to get where he is in my own experience. Uh, We heard from Dave and June earlier in the service. Wow. How do you really get where Paul is here? Um, I, I've told you about the, uh, some of the medical matters related to one of our children. Many of you know about that. You know what's even harder? You know what I found is harder than living in a country with the machine guns going off every night in the streets outside your home as a missionary, which I did for a year? You know what I found harder than personal suffering? The burden of the churches. Uh, I've, I've shared this with, I mean, we've seen more, I mean, it's just amazing. We've seen more people come to Christ, more <laughs> discipleship breakthroughs in the last year than the last three or four. And at the same time, this last year, I mean, last June, I was just spent. And I look at this text, and I say, how do you actually deal with, you know, okay, that's me, what, what you're going through? How do you deal with it? Do you grin and bear it? Do you smile in public and scowl in private and whine to all your friends about it when no one else is listening? Right? How, do, how do we actually have this glory that Paul is talking about? I think there is a way, and I think I've understood what he's saying, and I'm going to now try and teach it to us. He's saying two things. One is purpose. That's the second half of verse 17, where we're going to focus. And the other is a choice, and that's verse 18. So the purpose is this, in order that, it's a purpose statement. The choice is looking at life the way that Paul looks at life, uh, despite his own sufferings. And even that can lead to joy. Now, when I say joy, which is where I, I, I think, you know, we're going to end this sermon, you, you, I've immediately got to put a kind of barrier in there. You know, you do come across people sometimes in Christian circles who, you know, say that they're rejoicing because of their suffering. And, you know, I don't know how you feel about that, but sometimes I just feel such people need a good slap across the face or something. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just, you know, can you say that as a pastor? I'm not sure you can, but... You know what I mean, right? And so it's just not real. It's just pious nonsense. But there is a joy that we can have even in suffering. And that's different. So first purpose, then a choice. Purpose. Look what Paul says. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided, here's the purpose, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this suffering that Paul is talking about is general. He says, in this present time, this is not specific suffering for persecution for following Jesus. Elsewhere in the Bible, it does talk about that specifically, First Peter. But here, it is general, all suffering. So if you're sitting there wondering, you know, does my suffering count? Yes. All suffering. It all counts. Now, as I say, I'm going to focus on the second half of verse 17 and then verse 18 in a moment because we spent a lot of time uh, when we were going through Romans looking at the work of the Spirit. And if you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to those sermons online. Now, he carries on. If children, then heirs, inheritance. Now, when we think of an inheritance, we think of getting you know, our inheritance when our dad dies. You know, the Rolls Royce that you're going to get, something like that. Paul has something different in mind. He's thinking about the inheritance of the Old Testament, which is the land. So the idea is everywhere in the Old Testament, and when inheritance is used in the New Testament, is referring back to that. I don't have time to get into all of it, but just one quotation from Isaiah 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. It's that kind of language that Paul is picking up. Now, this leads to the same question that we have about our suffering today. If Jesus has come and we're raised with him, where is this inheritance? Where is this land? Where is this glory? Ah, says Paul, there's a purpose. You're raised with him. This being with Jesus is emphasized over and over again in this text. You're with him. And how did he enter his glory? Well, he suffered. He died and then rose again. And you are part of the same pattern. You say, well, that's not very encouraging. (laughs) Ah, yes, but it is. Everyone suffers and dies. This is the human condition. But for the Christian. There is now purpose. It has meaning. It is all in order that. So God is shaping and training and molding and forming and renewing and reconstituting and recalibrating your life through suffering that you might enter glory. There is a divine purpose through it all in order that. You say, how can I be sure? Paul says, it's with Christ Christ had the same purpose. You know how that worked. And with him, following in his footsteps, you are experiencing the same purpose. Now, let me break it down, because in any sermon, you've got to be practical. And in a sermon on suffering, most of all. Let me use a framework from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. He said this. Uh, Something like this. He owes, he said, more to the hammer and chisel in God's workshop than any other tool. So this is passive. This is something God is doing to the true Christian, to his child. He's using suffering to shape us. You are the clay. He is the potter. This is not a tool in your hand. This is a tool 
in God's hand. He is using suffering to change you. God said to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Pressure God was exerting on him to reshaping. So when suffering comes, the first question to ask is, what does God want me to learn? This suffering is a tool God is using to shape my character in some way. He's chiseling off some edge here. Smoothing off some rough part here. Okay, so what do you want me to learn, Lord? Now, I've always found that when I go through suffering, it's a little bit easier when I can see the purpose. But honestly, I cannot always. And there are things that have happened to me that I cannot see any purpose in yet. But I can still see the results. It's still changing my character. My personality is being shaped. Who I am is different. And so I can pray, Lord, let me not leave this fire without the dross being removed and the gold shining forth more clearly. That's the prayer. Let me make the most of this. See, when I pray, Lord, use me for your glory, the constant reply because of this pattern is, are you ready to pay the price? Glory comes through Calvary, no cross, no crown. He's not merciless in his shaping. He remembers that you are but dust. He stores all your tears in his bottle. Nothing is lost. All is for a purpose. Child, your heavenly Father is training you. Sometimes he uses sweet words and pleasant seasons, other times storms and rain. But unless a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it cannot produce much fruit. Purpose. So there's purpose. Suffering is God's tool to glorify us. You cannot have one without the other any more than you can have a child without child labor or birth pangs. But then you say, is it all passive? No, not at all. Verse 18 is very much active, and this is a choice. Listen to how Paul puts it. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, I've got to be very frank with you. I really wrestled with this text this week. I wanted to say as I read that, really? I mean, Paul, have you... Have you talked to the people I've talked to? I mean, really? Christians are the ultimate realists. We have the truth. We can be real about what's going on in life. And the reality is sometimes this life is just horrible. Right? Isn't that true? Look, I know we live in Wheaton and... (laughs) You know, you come to a four-way stop and, you know, it's like, after you, no, after you, no, after you. It's like, oh, just go, will you? Please, someone. And uh, it's a nice place, but it doesn't hide the fact of what's, what life is like. You know, you go to CDH, which is one of the best hospitals I've ever been in, I think. It's, but it's like, it's like a five-star resort. I mean, I'll take my vacation there. It's great. 
It's got a nice little coffee shop, a little place to buy some little trinkets, and you know, wow, it's really cool artwork. I mean, it's, I mean, it's hard to believe anyone ever dies there. I mean, really? Do they? I, um, and then I go to see someone, I, someone I went to see who'd recently become a Christian. He's emaciated, I can see his face, struggling for breathing holds my hand, he's dying, he's looking for glory. And all that's in my mind as I read this text. And I just, really, Paul? I mean, come on. Paul, don't pretend with me, you know? Come on, let's get real here. Don't fake, Paul. Don't fake it. But then there is this choice. Here's what I think Paul is saying. I make a conscious, deliberate choice to focus on glory. So let me explain that, and then I'm going to walk us through that choice. We're, we're going to make that choice if you will allow us to do that together. So explain it. The word consider here has a sense of reckoning, counting, considering, concluding. Uh, Paul uses it um, in Romans 3 verse 28, um, another reference. There are many places to use it, but here's one. For we hold, same word, that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this isn't, this isn't a momentary wondering. Like, oh, I consider today, but not tomorrow. This is a conclusion. I consider, I choose, I decided that therefore this is the reality. And what has he decided? Well, he says, um, look, there's, there's one, suffering. And actually that's not worth, not weighty enough, not valuable enough even to compare with the other glory. If you put one on one side of a scale to compare it with the other, if you put glory on one side of the scale and suffering on the other, suffering will just fly into the air as glory smashes down through the table. That's what he's saying. It's so much more valuable, like 10 solid gold bars put on one side of a scale and a tiny little grain of rice on the other. You cannot compare them. That's what he's saying. In other words, you know, you and I are always comparing them. We're saying, you know, I'm suffering, but hey, I get to go to heaven. Paul said, no, you can't even do that. You cannot even put them in the same scales. And I want to say, well, come on, Paul, Why? He's making a conscious choice to focus on glory. And I want to lead us to do that now. And I'm going to use um, the words of the great Puritan Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter suffered for many years, thought he was going to die. And actually, during that suffering, didn't die and wrote a book about his experience, a famous book. And he decided, he made a choice, to focus for half an hour every day on heaven, on glory. This is what Baxter said about his experience. If you, is a little puritany, but you'll get there. If you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? Puritans have these wonderful images. Then he explains, for want of this recourse to heaven, that is focusing on glory, your soul is as a lamp not lighted. And your duty 
as a sacrifice without fire. It just feels like duty, going through the motions. Why? This is what he tells you to do. Fetch one coal daily from this altar, focusing on glory. And see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire, focusing on glory. And see if your affections will not be warm. So let's do that. Let's follow Paul's thinking. There is this time, this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We have the Spirit within us. We are with Christ and we are raised with Christ, but our bodies are not. What is the logical deduction from that? It is that there must be a point where the tension is going to be resolved. Now, Paul is not anti the body. He's not against the physical. But the truth is that the physical body will decay and die. Now, if, by the way, if you don't know Christ, none of this is true for you. You can have no purpose, no confidence, no assurance, no sense of destiny. You are living in a dystopia sci-fi novel where everything is getting worse. But not the Christian. It's getting better. And that's true for you whether you're a freshman or an undergraduate or an 85-year-old. It's getting better. And actually as an 85-year-old, you're closer to glory. You should be happier. It's getting better. Why? How can you know that? Because you have Christ already. You're with him already. You know him already. So the spirit of God bears witness of our spirit that we're children of God. And so what does that mean? How do you know that? You want to pray. You may not pray perfectly, you want to. You want to be holy. You may not be perfectly holy, none of us are, but you want to be holy. No non-Christian really wants that. You know, when the gospel starts to really go forward in this region, in Chicago and DuPage County, there'll be more opposition from nominal nominal Christians, non-Christians. The greater the power of the gospel in Wheaton, the more the nominal Christians will say they don't like it. They won't say they don't like the gospel, they'll find other things to criticize. I don't like your music. I don't like the clothes you wear. A number of times I've heard people criticizing college church for the clothes we wear. Who cares? What are they really criticizing? Is it the power of the gospel here? I don't like your taste in novels. (laughs) What the nominal Christian really doesn't like is what's actually going on until they experience the power of Christ. And if you have, if you are a real Christian, if you're becoming a real Christian now, you're going to begin to like what's happening because you're a child of God and you love your heavenly father and his spirit bears witness to your spirit. You're not perfect, but you want him. Now Paul says, I choose to follow where all that leads. I have that already. I'm with him now. I have his spirit and that's the case If this is what it's like now, if this is the beginning, where's that going to end? What will the end be like? This is the most exciting thing I think I'm ever going to share with you. You know, some preachers probably share that every week, and I think sometimes I do, you know. I just get excited about what I'm looking at. So I think now this is the most exciting thing I'm ever going to share with you. But I think I might be right, because this is glory. Look, look, here's, 
I've told this illustration a few times and it's a little risky. But I think it's a good illustration. So I hope you laugh at the appropriate moments and don't send me any letters afterwards. But uh, look, say you've got a baby, okay? Everyone says, you know, how cute newborn babies are. But you cannot fool me. I'm a dad and I've had four. Newborn babies are all basically gross looking. (laughs) They look like wrinkled prunes. Let's be honest, okay? I mean, everyone goes up to the mother and says, you know, what a beautiful baby. And what they're thinking is, what a baby. (laughs) Frankly, they all look alike to me, you know. I know that's a very male thing to say, and I I apologize profusely. You know, if you've got a baby, it's beautiful, trust me. (laughs) And, and, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'll hug your baby and pose for a picture and smile and tell you how beautiful it is, you know. But... um, Okay, so you've got a baby. What's going to happen to that baby? Well, you really don't know. But I tell you what you do know. <laughs> you know it's not going to turn out, it's, it's not going to become a car. Right? It's not going to become a tiger or something, right? How do you know that? Because the seed has been sown, some green shoots. And it's going to grow up to be an adult and enter its human glory. I think of that, says Paul. I follow where my new birth must lead. I don't need all this vain speculation about exactly how many angels there are in which third court of heaven, which I can't find anywhere in the Bible. I don't need that. You know why? Because I've been raised with Christ spiritually. And therefore I know that one day physically I will be raised too. You say, Paul, you're just faking. No, this is is Paul. Shipwrecked, beaten, accused, vilified, so many scars, he used them as a badge of honor. You want to know where I'm an apostle? Look, right here, see? He says, ah, but I choose, I consider glory. Put one on the scales, cannot even compare, it just smashes through, incomparable. You say, how is that possible? Well, what is the Glory. He says, we will be conformed to the image of his son, the glorious Jesus, and we will be glorified to share his glory. Now, you say, you know, I'd like to choose to focus on that, but the reality is I'm suffering, and that, just, that noise just, just drowns out everything else. I'd like to ask God to use suffering to shape me and accept his purpose, but frankly, I just feel pain. And that just overwhelms me and I cannot do anything else. And look, I get that. And, you know, one sermon is not going to heal every single person, right? I mean, I guess God could do that if he wants. But I cannot provide you the answer right now to every little particular thing that every single person is going through. But here's what I can do. I can tell you to focus on the glory. There is a purpose 
And there is a choice that you can make. Here's a final illustration. It's um, from J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, the author of The Lord of the Rings. And uh, he reflects at one point. He writes an essay on why people like fairy tales. You know, those sort of uh, high-class literature people always accusing J.R.R. Tolkien of writing fairy tales. But his books were extraordinarily popular and still are. And he was saying, well, why? And what he says is people like two things. They like stories about how we are no longer bound by time. And he says they like stories about how we are no longer bound by death. He says there's a reason for that. It's a memory of paradise. And if you're a Christian, that's where you're going. Now, if you're not a Christian here yet, don't you at least want that? And if you are a Christian, focus on glory. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to this just brilliant finale, as we sing together, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, by your Spirit, accept your purpose and choose now to focus on glory. In the name of Jesus, 